Tonight we're coming to the end of the book. That portion of the chapter that we read, verse 6 down to the end. And this epilogue, the main text that embodies what we want to say tonight, is found in verse 7. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. This book. That's the emphasis of the epilogue. The book itself. What is its nature? What is it about? Again in verse 9, the angel says, I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren the prophets and of them which keep the sayings of this book. We're talking about this book, the whole book. This is the emphasis. And then in verse 10, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And then you have it there in verse 18. I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And then verse 19, if any man take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life. And that's that's another word for book. It's a different book. It's not this book. Out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. So do you see how that's emphasized time and time again? This book. You need to know what this book is. It's power. It's nature. You can't neglect it. It's something you have to be reverent with. This book. So that's the emphasis. And not only is there the word book. uh, There are other words as well that are referring to the book in different terms. For example, the saints are the words. In verse 6, he said unto me, these saints. It's often translated words. These words. Talking about the words of the book. These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angels to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. That's a reference to the book again. The things, the things in the book. The words in the book. The sayings in the book. And then verse 7. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the book. The words. Always pointing out The book. Then verse 9. I am thy fellow servant. And of thy brethren the prophets. And of them which keep the sayings. The words. It's been textualized you see. It's a solid book. We possess it today. It contains words. We're to keep the words. The sayings of the book. This is the emphasis. And then verse 10. He saith unto me. Don't seal the sayings. Of this book. Verse 18. If any man add on to these things. And then in verse 19. If any man shall take away from the words. The words of the book. Not, not just the ideas and the thoughts. But the very words. It's textualized. It's solid. It's a book. It's not going to go out of the history of the church. It's always going to be in the, in the church. It's going to be passed on from generations to generations. And this is what we need to know about that book that we possess. The words of it. The things that are written. And then there's another word. It's called prophecy. 
You have that in verse 10, the prophecy of this book. Verse 18, the words of the prophecy of this book. This prophecy, verse 19. So it clearly is, I mean, just at a very basic glance at the portion, that, that's jumping out at us. This is telling us something about this book. The book is one, you see. Can't be broken up. It's one. It's, it's a whole book. It's 22 chapters in our translation. That's how our translators have divided it up. But it's a book. And we still have it today. It's something written. It's something textualized. John was told time and time again, write, John. Write the things that you see. Write them down in a book. And here at the end, it's emphasized the book. It's as if the book is finished. This book. He's written the book. And now... The epilogue is to be written. And the Lord comes along at the very last time. As as the book is finished. But he gives them the epilogue. This book. This book. The one you've nearly completed John. Apart from this epilogue. This book. So we need to know about the book. And it is something written. That's another word that occurs. Verse 18. That are written in this book. Verse 19. Which are written in this book. So it's, it's, it's already written. He's already done the work in his study. Put it down in the text. It's already existing. This book. And now he's receiving the last words concerning it. Before he concludes with that benediction. So we have a written book. We have written words. We have written prophecy. The very same prophecy and the very same book that the seven churches got. And has been retained amongst us to this very day. So that we have the wonderful privilege of possessing it in our hands. And while the emphasis is on this book. It is not only on it. Remember this is the last book in the canon. This concludes the Bible. This concludes the whole body of revealed truth. That God has given on to the church So it's one book, but it's part of a greater book. It's a book in a library of books. It's a book, therefore, that is of the same nature as the rest of the books. So what is said here in the epilogue concerning this book is also true concerning all the books of Holy Scripture. And I think that's brought out in the epilogue. For example, you see there in verse 6, He said unto me, These sayings, that is, the words in this book, are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angels to show unto his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. Now, why does the angel say that? Why does he not just say, the Lord God sent me to give you this this vision, this revelation? He says, the Lord God of the holy prophets. Now, why does he add that? Isaiah? Jeremiah? Ezekiel, they have Moses and the prophets. Abraham said to the rich man in hell, the Lord God of the holy prophets. It's obviously stated so that we know that this book comes from the same God as the God of the holy prophets. This book comes from the same God who raised up Isaiah and gave the prophecy of Isaiah. This is the same God who raised up Jeremiah and gave the prophecy of Jeremiah. 
and the prophecy of Ezekiel. So the God who spoke through David, the God who spoke through Moses, the God who spoke through Isaiah, the angel is saying, He's spoken through me to give unto you the book. It belongs to the canon of the prophets. It's God's word. It's the Bible. It's part of the Bible. So what I said of this last book is also applicable to the whole scriptures to which it belongs. And I think that that is to be pointed out. So if to tamper and change this book has a curse in it, we can say also that it has that same with all the other Holy Prophets writings. Now the method of delivery of this book is a bit different, of course, we know that. It contains apocalyptic visions, and an angel was used to, to bring the prophet into that and to show him the visions. It was a wee bit different. It was largely dictated as well. You know, he wrote down what he saw, he wrote down what he heard. So it's a wee bit different from what Isaiah and the gospel writers are doing, but it's from the same Lord God of Revelation. And what is textualized is what God wanted to be textualized. He is still under the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so that what is textualized is the written word of God, this book, and belongs to this, this book, or this library of books. It's all from the Lord God of Revelation. It's the Lord God of his holy word. Now in verse 7, uh, these words are the words of Christ. Behold, I come quickly, he says. And we have the last two blessings in this book of the Revelation here. And this is the first one of the last two. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. So the Lord here is kind of interrupting the angel and speaking directly himself by his own mouth. And John recognizes it. This word out of the mouth of Jesus, he is giving testimony to the prophecy. He is ranking the prophecy with the rest of Scripture. He is the one who calls it prophecy. That, that's what this book is. It's the prophecy. Just like whenever people are referring to Isaiah, for example, you find in Matthew, he refers sometimes to Isaiah and he calls it the prophecy of Isaiah. Well, this is the prophecy of this book. This is just the same as Isaiah. It's the prophecy. And what's the prophecy? The prophecy of Scripture is not of any private origination, the Bible says. The prophecy didn't come in old time by the will of man. The prophecy came by holy men of God, as they were born along, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. This prophecy, this is what Jesus is saying. This, this is of the nature of the rest of Scripture. It's prophecy. And this is the witness of Christ. So Christ himself is bearing witness to this book that it is the prophecy, it belongs to the rest of the canon of the Bible. And there's a blessing, a heavenly blessing for keeping its words. That Christ is a witness, and this is what this is all about. The witnesses are coming forth, they're bearing witness to the scripture. In verse 16, Jesus, I, Jesus, sent mine angel to testify. This is my witness. I'm testifying to the book. I'm testifying to the prophecy. I've sent my angel to testify unto you these things, these words, these sayings, this prophecy in the churches. I'm testifying to you that it belongs to the canon. And we know in actual fact that it concludes the canon. It's the last book in the canon of Holy Scripture. 
Verse 18. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If you add unto it, he's warning them, he's giving them testimony. The whole testimony is relating to the importance of the book. I'm testifying to the book. I'm testifying so that you don't add to the book. I'm testifying so you don't take away from the book. Verse 20. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. So you see the emphasis here? It's all about testimony. It's all about bearing witness to this book. It's all about establishing this book as part of the word of God and making sure it doesn't get left out of the canon of scripture. There are some people who have left it out. They say this book is totally different from the rest of the scripture. I can't understand this scripture. This doesn't seem to belong part of the scripture. This is different. But the Lord is forbidding that from taking place. He's testifying in the churches and to the churches concerning this prophecy. And even though we can't understand it, and even though sometimes we may misinterpret it, we still have to receive it as the prophecy of the word of God. So Christ is, is bearing witness to the book. And while he is bearing witness to the book, he's not alone. Because what's the saying? In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established. And so Christ here, he's the main testifier. He personally comes. He doesn't always personally come. The angel is the one who's always present. But at the end, Jesus is coming, just like at the start, to be personally present, to be his own witness. And to stand by his holy angel who has delivered these visions in his name. And so there are many witnesses in this portion. And they're all saying the same thing. All emphasizing the nature of the unity and authority of this book. You have the Lord God as a witness. The verse 6. These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. So, so the Lord God is named the Jehovah God. The God of the prophets. The angel says he sent me. He's a witness. And then the angel himself is a witness. What does it say there? Sent his angels to show unto his servants the things which must come to pass. And John actually falls down to worship this angel at the end. So mighty and powerful is he and so much the means of transmitting the word of God that John falls to worship him and he's forbidden from doing that. He's just, he's just acting the part of a prophet and like the prophets who just were vehicles to communicate the word of God. But he's not God. So the angel forbids him from worshipping him but he, he's just a witness like, you, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel like you and me. We're just witnesses. That's all we are. So the angel's a witness, and then John is a witness, because what does it say there in verse 8? I, John, saw these things and heard them. So he has to put down his own witness. He wants to add that as well. He realizes what is happening. The angel, the Lord God, Jesus, they're all bearing witness. And John says, I want to write it down too. I did see these things. I heard these things. And he goes on later on to say about a lie, about the danger of being a liar. And it excludes you from the water of life and excludes you from the holy city. So he's telling the truth. He must be telling the truth. He's witnessing. And then the church is a witness. 
Because it says there is something interesting in verse 6. The Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angels to show unto his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. Well, the only one who saw them was, was John. He was the only one who really saw them and wrote them all down. And yet it says, plural, to show unto his servants the things. Because the Lord didn't intend them just for John, his servant. He intended us through John's eyes to see them as well and to be witnesses to the world of what we've seen. So he's thinking of us. He's thinking of the believers. He's thinking of the church. We're witnesses too. His servants who have the book. We're witnesses to the book. We're witnesses to its power. We're witnesses to the blessing it has made to us as we've studied it and searched it together. And we are a witness to the Bible. The world out there doesn't believe the Bible. But we give out the Bible. Haven't you give out the Bible? And then you're giving out the Bible. You're giving witness to this is the word of God. This we confess. This we witness to. We've experienced this power. We are witnesses. And so the servants of God even here are included in this epilogue. So the church is a witness. And what does it say there in verse 17? The spirit and the bride say, Come. So the voice of the bride is present. The voice of the church is in the epilogue. The voice of the church is, is saying, yes, it, it is telling us to come to the water of life. So the church is a witness that's emphasized in verse 17 as well. Not the church, of course, by itself. Because you will notice that in verse 17 it says, The Spirit and the bride say, come. And that's the order. We don't say it in ourselves, but we say it by the Holy Spirit, who has opened our eyes and given us the faith and assurance in our own heart to the authority of it. And the Spirit who dwells in the church, the Spirit who illuminates the church, the Spirit who is the Spirit of truth, guiding the church into all the truth, that testimony of the Spirit, parallel with the testimony of the church, is saying this book this book is the word of God. This book is to be believed. This book is not to be tampered with. The church with the anointing of the Holy Ghost. The bride says come. And the spirit is the true witness in and through the church. And we must never forget that, brethren and sisters, that our witness is parallel with the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is also a witness to us, the Apostle says. Jesus said, when the Comforter is come, whom I send unto you, which proceedeth from the Father, he'll testify of me. You remember how the Lord Jesus said so often in the letters to the Revelation, what did he say? He that have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. So the Spirit is holy in this book. A witness to it as being the source of it in the revelation of God. So we're seeing here this, this is a very special book. We haven't wasted our time in it in all the years that we've spent in it in our midweek, midweek meeting. We've just honoured the nature of the book. We've just honoured the authority of the book. We haven't understood it all. We've maybe misinterpreted parts of it in our folly. But I trust that we've had reverence for the book and I felt something of its blessing, something of its power in our lives. So the epilogue is designed to give us a sense of its marvelous relevancy in the church of Jesus Christ that we dare not ignore it and that we must reverence it. 
even if we fail to understand it. Now, we've seen the witness to the book. What is it then about the book in particular that they witness onto all of these witnesses? What is the epilogue emphasizing particularly about the book? Let me quickly point them out to you. First of all, there obviously is an emphasis on the divine origin of the book. The book is heavenly. The book is something that the Lord God stands over and Jesus Christ stands over and the holy angels stand over and the church stands over and the spirit stands over. I mean, that's not an ordinary book that gets that kind of witness. That kind of persons standing around it and bearing testimony to it. What, what, what earthly book gets witness like that? Now, there's some great books in the world. Milton, Paradise Lost, Paradise Gained. Wonderful book. Grounded on the Holy Scripture and many other books as well, but, but they don't get this kind of epilogue, this, this arena of witnesses on its behalf. This is heavenly. This is divine. While it is a human penman, John, of course, that's no hiding of that fact. He's involved in it. John was called. John was commissioned. John was commanded to write. John was shown and heard what he was to write. He's always being guided and directed. But the material is heavenly. It's of divine origin. Is John infallible? No, he's not infallible. In ordinary life, if he's writing his own things. But when he writes this book, he's infallible. I mean, heaven isn't going to go all the bother of showing him all of this, and standing by all of this, and then somehow it's going to contain errors because, you know, John's wrote it down wrong. He made a mistake. He made an error. He, he, he forgot something because he's fallible. But the, the Lord's not going to allow that to happen. That doesn't happen to pen men of scriptures. Yes, they are fallible in ordinary, everyday life. But whenever they come to put down the text of what God wants to reveal, they're not fallible. Inspiration maintains the infallibility of the tax. So it's unthinkable that there's any error in the book. The, the book itself, this book, the Lord God says and the angels say and the Spirit says, we can stand by this book. It's divine. And the book has a text. And that has been faithfully transmitted in different texts down through the years, copied, 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 copied. The body of the text of Scripture has been preserved by us and through a reverent use of looking at the text and choosing the right text and knowing the mind of the Spirit, we have the Word of God as, as John wrote it down. Because in Providence too, the Lord has preserved the text, which is why we're very careful about the text that we use and about the modern versions which have wholly different texts on occasions behind them. So the book itself, this emphasis on the divine heavenliness of it, the origin of it, this, this prophecy. And it's written, this book. And it doesn't just contain the word of God. We, we have to say this here too. You know, because especially in the late 1800s and early 1900s, there's this, this kind of thought going about, oh yes, the Bible contains the word of God. And you can find it in there. 
the, the sense is that you know it's, it's mixed up with things that aren't the word of God. It's just contained in there. You have to sort it out and find it out. And you need to be a textual scholar to kind of do that. No, this book, the whole of the book, is of divine origin. And that's not only true of the, the last book, but of the whole body of the library of the books of God. And therefore it is the word of God, not just containing it, but is the word of God. This book is the word of God. That's at least as this epilogue wants us to see it. And we believe that this is true. And then following from that, the divine and heavenly origin of the book, it follows up that, that it must be true and faithful. Because heaven doesn't lie, and the Lord God is not a man that he should lie. And therefore, these words must be true saints, true words, faithful words. And that's exactly what the epilogue says. Because you have it there in verse 6. He said unto me, these saints, these words, are faithful and true. Now, that says very often throughout the book. Sometimes in, in the, this vision or that vision or another vision, faithful and true. But this is the epilogue now. And what, what is happening now is this is referring to the whole of the body of the book. Faithful and true. Faithful and true. The Bible is, is true. It's to be believed. What is truth? The Bible is truth. What do we need to know for our salvation? The Bible has it all. It's not coming short. And is telling us the truth. And we ought to believe the truth. We have to receive the truth. We have to have confidence in the truth. We ought to be able to say to the world and to the devil, it is written, you see. It's the truth. The scripture cannot be broken. That follows from the nature of the book. It's faithful and true. And then it follows on from that. If divine prophecy, divine in origin and true and faithful in its words, then it follows, it shall be fulfilled. That none of it will fall to the ground. That none of it will fail of being fulfilled. Because remember, it is a prophecy, and it's telling us of things that are future. From the position of the seven churches. Not just from our position. But from the position of the seven churches. The Lord is saying, you have that there, what does it say there in verse 6? These sayings are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angels to show unto his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. It's all going to come to pass. It's all going to be fulfilled. John is saying to the seven churches who, who received this 2,000 years ago, they were told it's shortly going to come to pass. Well, 2,000 years has passed. But they were saying these things in their day. They had fulfillment in their day because this isn't something that, you know, you shoot away to the end of the world. You know, for seven years during the tribulation and then all of a sudden they'll see these things being fulfilled. No, the, the Lord says, these things are shortly going to come to pass. They're shortly going to find fulfillment. You're going to see them yourself. In the Roman Empire. And what's taking place. What the devil is going to be doing. In your day and generation. And it's the same in every generation for the church. We are seeing them fulfilled before our eyes. Haven't we gone through the book. 
And have we seen the spirit of Antichrist in our day? Have we seen the spirit of Babylon in our day? Well, they were seeing it in John's day too, you know. It had relevancy in his day too. Shortly coming to pass. Being fulfilled before your very eyes. Because it's God's word. And it's always relevant. And it's always up to date. And he always makes it appropriate for the church in every generation. So there's nothing going to drop to the ground. It's all going to come to pass. There's nothing going to fail. And you'll see it before your very eyes. And you have it there in verse 10. Seal not the prophecy, the sayings of the prophecy of this book. You see, the seven churches understood it. John was told not to seal it. You don't need to seal it, John. It's not a closed book. It's not a shut up book. Don't seal it. It's to be open to the seven churches. It's an unsealed book. They're going to see it being fulfilled. They're going to witness its truth and relevancy. And my spirit is going to illuminate them so that they have understanding of it. So, so don't seal it up as if it's for you know thousands of years away. No, don't, don't seal it up, John. The time is at hand. You can't get any plainer than that. It's at hand. Written 2,000 years ago. It's at hand. And it's still at hand. Because it's always relevant. It will have a final conclusion. A final completion. I mean the new heavens and the new earth haven't come down yet. And the holy city Jerusalem. But, but it's in construction. We've entered into the new age. It's a sure. It's, it's commenced. It just hasn't been consummated yet. It's being fulfilled before our eyes even now. The new Jerusalem is up there in the heavens even now. It's being constructed even now. It's coming to the consummation even now. And it's all going to be fulfilled. And then also, fourthly, it follows from that, that if it's divine, if it's faithful and true, and if it contains all things that are going to be fulfilled before our eyes, it follows from that, that we ought to receive it, believe it, keep it, and obey the words of the book as of all scripture. This is a path to blessing, you see. It points this out in this epilogue, as I'll show you in a wee moment. This is a path to blessing, to obey this book, to believe this book. This is a path to go on with God. This is a path to honour. And contrarywise, to not believe it, to not receive it, to disobey it, that's the path to dishonour. That's the path to cursing. You know, the Bible is not to fascinate us and intrigue us. Now, it does do that. It does fascinate us and it does intrigue us. It thrills us and it excites us. But it's not merely for that. It's not just about that. Nor is it merely to let us see the future. You know, the flesh, they like to see the future. And they can be intrigued by the Bible because of the insights into the future that they suppose that it has. And it does have many insights into the future. But it's mainly about the present, about you now. And your walk with God now. Not to see the future and then to tell people all about it. That can be all very fleshly, that, that business. That, that can be a point of pride, really. But the book of the Revelation is not to that end. It's like all of Scripture. And the purpose of all of Scripture is to furnish us unto holiness. It's to lead us to Christ. It's to lead us to salvation. It's to lead us to faith. It's to lead us to repentance. It's to humble us. 
It's to sanctify us. That's the purpose of Scripture. It's to make us to love the Lord more. It's to make us to obey the Lord. It's to make us to be like the Lord. That, that's what the Bible's all about. The Bible is a practical thing for sinners and for saints. And we must never pervert the purpose of Scripture, brethren and sisters. Its purpose is to make us holy. To make us the keeper of God's ways. To please God. To get to the path of life. The water of life. To have the cleansing and the purifying. And the holiness that comes from the life of God. And that's what heaven's all about. Just that water of life. Access to that water of life. All that holiness. All that purity. All that God-likeness. All that reflection of the glory of God in the waters. That, that, that's what it's all about. And the Bible is for that purpose. To present that water of life to us. That holy life. That God-like life. That pure life. The book is to be transforming. That's the nature of the book. It's to transform us. To change us. From glory to glory. Until the final glory in the new Jerusalem. That's a real transformation. It's not a sexual transformation. An unspeakable lie. An utter impossibility. No, it's a transformation from sinful depravity to God-likeness. That's the real transformation sinners want. Well, what they should want. What they need. We want to be transformed to the likeness of Christ. That's the true transformation. That's what they should be telling the sinners. That's what they should be telling these people who, who are looking at a change because of some psychological problems that they're having in mind. I don't know all the reasons why they want to do this. But they need help. And the help is to tell them about the true transformation that the Holy Spirit makes. And he can bring to you through his word. And that's the counsel we have to give to people. To all sinners. However perverted their thoughts may become. And we have to deal with these people in a way of kindness too, brethren and sisters. And to tell them about the, the transforming grace of God. That can bring to them something true and real. And so much better. And utterly sinless. And pleasing to God. So this is what the book is about. It's transforming. And that's why the, the letters to the seven churches were written. What was the Lord Jesus doing? He was transforming the churches. There were some in bed with Jezebel. There were some who were more concerned in the money in the bank. And they were sitting back. It was all so well for them. They forgot about the spiritual riches in Christ. And the Lord is bringing them the book of the Revelation. To transform them. God's word is transforming. May it always in this house through his grace be changing us from glory to glory. Sanctifying us even as our Savior prays for us. Sanctify them through thy word. So we have that all of here. Verse 7. Blessed is he that keepeth the saints. You have to keep the saints. It's practical. It's to be obeyed. Verse 9. I am of them which keep the saints of this book. We're to keep the book. We're to obey the book. Then verses 11. He, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. But he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. It's encouraging us on to transformation, to the, the change onto righteousness. I mean the unjust, 
He shouldn't want to be unjust still. I mean, reading those very words, that should be terrible. That should be fearful. That should be awesome. To be unjust still. To be filthy still. To be filthy to the end. Oh, how wicked, how awful that must be. And the very thought of it is transforming in itself. How it ought to be. Oh, I don't want to be belonging to that part. I want to be belonging to the other part. And that's the purpose of the book. To call us out of Babylon. To call us out of the unholiness. Unto holiness. Verse 14. Blessed are they that do his commandments. There's a practicality about the book. And so it follows from all of this. In closing. That if divine. If faithful and true. If to be utterly fulfilled. And to be believed and obeyed. And to be transformed by it. It follows from this. That we must not tamper with the book. If the book is all of this. It's not our business to change it. And so there's a very solemn warning here. The most solemn warning you'll ever find in the Bible. Don't tamper with this book. Don't think that you know better than the book. And you can change it. What does it say there. In verses 18 and 19. A very fearful warning. I testify unto every man. Now I want everybody here to listen to this. Wake up. Everybody listen to this. Every man, Jesus says it. It's not me being rude to you tonight. It's Jesus saying, every man, every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man, if any of you, if any one of you add unto these things, God add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man take away aught of the book, this prophecy, take away aught of this prophecy, and as I said, it includes the whole Bible, if any man does that, God will take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city. That holy city that you've just seen there in chapter 21. To be taken away from that and all of the hope of that. And so don't, don't tamper with the book. God wants us to reverence it and believe it and obey it. And not to tamper with it. And of course, as I said, it's true of all scripture. Deuteronomy, Moses said, Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you. What sort of thing I command you? Observe to do it. Don't diminish from it. Don't take away from it. Thou shalt not add unto its words, lest he reprove thee, and you be found a liar. So we're not to tamper with the book. And let's not think, brethren and sisters, that this is only a danger of scholars. You know, those dealing with the textual criticism of the Bible. They're pulling this out and putting that out and putting this in, you know, on the basis of their proud knowledge without any dependence on the Holy Spirit. They're, they're tampering with the book, as it were. It is a warning to them. But then, who among us are scholars? We're not textual critics. We don't deal with this business of you know, changing. We don't dare change the text of the book. We're very faithful to our authorised version. We don't tamper with the text. That doesn't mean we can be proud, and we're beyond this sin. Because this is not just a sin of scholars. Not believing some parts of it is taking away from it. Not obeying some parts is taking away from it. Misinterpreting may also take away from it. So it's a very serious business for the preacher to rightly divide the word of truth, not tamper with it, not take away its true sense, its true meaning, to get something else. So we all can do that. Take Bible out of its context. And you can do that in your personal life. You know, well, this will be a personal word for me. And, you know, it can all taken out of his context. You need to be careful. Keep the word in his context. And learn the vital lessons of the, of the context. 
what God is teaching you through the whole truth of scripture but, but be very careful to wrench things out and to change things and misapply things not believe things not obey things so it's always a warning to us as preachers a warning to us as hearers we can make the word of none effect you see without changing the text remember the Lord Jesus said uh, you make the word of God of none effect you, know, you should be honoring your father and mother but you know you lay aside this money here and you say it's a gift for God's work and you know you don't even do your business of looking after your household and you get around it that way. You made the commandment of God none effect by your tradition. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you? People draw near me with their mouth but their heart is far, far from me. They're not interested in obeying the word of God at all. It's all show. And so brethren and sisters that's a very serious warning isn't it? Tampering with God's word. Getting around the obligation to, to obey this and that and do this and that. And so it closes on a solemn note. And I, I think that's the solemn note we should close on tonight. This book. This book. May God help us to obey it.